You may be seated. Good morning. I got an email this week from the missionaries, the Dunlops. They're a missionary family that our church supports. They're going to uh, France as, as missionaries, and they have reached 100% of their support, which is an incredible thing to think about because uh, they started right before um, all the COVID stuff happened. And um, to be able to raise support, you got to be in churches presenting your ministry. And of course, the churches weren't having meetings and so forth. And so uh, it's such a blessing that they were able to have 100% of their support. They're, Lord willing, flying out uh, in May is when they're planning on doing this. And uh, they got to apply for religious visas and do all that type of stuff. So uh, continue praying for the Dunlops as they are planning on starting their first term in France. And then uh, the Jansons, I talked with the Jansons, they're uh, missionaries to the Philippines involved in church planning. Uh, they're back in the area uh, until April. Uh, Lord willing, in April, they're going to be flying back to the Philippines. Tonight, they're going to stop by and say hello. Um, they'll be about uh, five, ten minutes over on the Spanish side, uh, just saying a, a quick update about what they're doing and their plans to go back to the Philippines and then they'll uh, come over to the Bible study this evening and uh, Gary's going to allow them to have um, a five, ten minutes at the end of the Bible study to give a, a presentation about um, what they're, what they have been doing, what they're planning on doing in April. He did uh, ask when we, uh, when we as a church were going to send somebody over to the Philippines and I started thinking, Gigi has been over to the Philippines. So I think she's the prime candidate to kind of lead that missions trip over there. And uh, so we'll be uh, praying about if, if God would have us uh, go and visit them at some point. Uh, praise the Lord for that. We're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 14. Ephesians chapter 5, 6 through 14, if you would please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, this is the Word of the Lord. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfaithful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak uh, of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray your spirit would uh, uh, illumine our minds so that we can understand it. Father, we don't want just a bunch of more facts to know about. We want to be doers of the word. We want to put it into practice. 
We know it's your will that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves. And I pray that this text will be applied to our lives in such a way that uh, we will be practicing it today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Some changes happen gradually in a person's life. And as these changes happen gradually, it's hard to sometimes evaluate the implication of them. Uh, For example, here in the States, uh, uh, a person is considered in in some fashion as an adult when they are 18 years old. All of a sudden, they they can vote. Uh, You know, they could, uh, if they have good credit, they can uh, rent an apartment. Now, uh, this uh, sometimes catches people by surprise. You know, it's an election year, and they're 18, and um, the the election period goes by, and and they say, I forgot, I could have voted this year. You know, and it just, it comes upon them. It was so gradual. They didn't evaluate. They didn't plan. They didn't think about what it implied for that transition of going from child to adult. Uh, Sometimes this... uh, this change that happens, it, it, it happens rather suddenly. And it, uh, it, it doesn't allow one to evaluate either. Like it, it can happen all of a sudden something. Uh, for example, a, a spouse dying. Uh, a person lives with the spouse all these years and they, uh, try to, um, they, they try to get used to all the different sounds that the spouse makes. And, um, you know, the, the coffee being made in the morning, the coffee cup being put on the counter, the this, the that, the, the flushing the toilet, lifting, uh, turning the light on, you know, while everybody's trying to sleep. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, death happens, and, and there's silence. There's, there's silence. And it, it, it takes time for the mind to evaluate that change. They've been so trying to get used to the noise that now all of a sudden there's a silence. Or, or maybe a, a couple that has been dating for a while. And they're dating for a while, and all of a sudden, they, they haven't really considered what it means to be married. Uh, what, what does that involve them? What, what does God's Word say about a married couple? And so uh, they, they get married, and they go off on their honeymoon. They're gone a week, and they come back, and, and uh, they're in their new home, together and so forth, and then she, she notices that uh, in the afternoon he, he's kind of getting dressed, and, and she's like, where are you going? He's like, well, you know, it, we were gone a week. I haven't hung out with my friends, you know, for a whole week, and so I thought me and the guys, we'd go out and hang out for a while. Of course, she says, no, no, you're not. You're putting Ikea furniture together for the rest of your life. That's what you're doing, Right. Uh, that, that, that's what he has to do. He, he hasn't stopped to evaluate what it means to be married. Yeah, now, sometimes these changes happen in our life, and, and we don't really consider, what does it mean for me personally when this happens? Uh, Paul has been presenting a, a radical transformation that has occurred in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Uh, a, a radical thing where the person has moved uh, from death unto life. The person has believed, and in that believing, they're moved from death unto life. That person is placed in the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, and now all of a sudden this person is part of that body. 
Uh, that's a, an incredible transformation, a radical transformation that has happened. The person is a new creature. Now, after the person receives Christ as their Savior, there's a need for discipleship. Uh, initially, this salvation has a dramatic transformation that happens. At that moment of faith, at that moment, that person trusts in the work of Christ on the cross. They confess their sins. They realize they're a sinner. They, they put their faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. At that moment, they're saved. But then starts a transformation, the implications of, of that decision, of that new birth. And so there's the need for discipleship. Now, how is discipleship done in the church? Well, there's corporate times of discipleship where we come together. We sing songs of praise, which, uh, by the way, I would, the first song you sang... Uh, Uh, praise the Lord, the Almighty. I was thinking just this, this week, I was, I was working outside, and I said, it'd be really nice if we sang that song. And, and this guy, he's just in tune with me. I mean, I didn't even tell him. And boom, that song is there. Uh, but we sing songs together, and these songs are in praise of the Lord. It's, it's moments of discipleship. We, we have reading of Scripture. We, we have times of prayer. We have giving we have going through God's word. These are times of corporately being discipled to grow and become more Christ-like. Uh, there's also individual discipleship where uh, we can have Bible studies and it's more in a smaller group. And this happens on different levels throughout the church as well. But chapters 1, 2, and 3 state the indicative of the believer, who they are, this new reality that God has done, a salvation that he has provided and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 uh, give uh, application, or, or better yet, it gives uh, commands of how one is supposed to live based on what, what was presented in chapters 1, 2, and, and 3. What we'll be looking at today is that those who are in Christ must walk in all things good, righteous, and true. Now, let me define this a little bit because... There are a lot of things that people say is good, but it does not meet up to the standard of God. We're not talking about individual standards of good, like what I think is good and what you think is good. It's not be, be your better self type of deal. I'm not talking about that. We're to be involved in what God calls good. We're to be involved in things that are righteous. Uh, we could say just uh, there's a lot of talk about justice and righteousness and so forth. We're not talking about worldly concepts of righteous and justice. We're talking about what God has determined is righteous and then true. We're not talking about what I think is true and what you think is true, some type of relative. No, no. We're talking about what God says is true. A Christian, those who are in Christ, must walk according to what God has determined is good, righteous, and true. That, that's the Christian life. And to do that, those who are in Christ must believe God's word. They must believe God's word. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. Now, last week we looked at verses 3 through 5, and in sense that is a that's a paragraph, that's a pericope that has an idea. And we have another pericope, another paragraph that is tied to the previous one, but there is a little bit of a distinction, but it's dependent on, on the previous one. He starts off, let no one 
deceive you. Uh, let no one deceive you. That word deceive is kind of a unique word. It only happens, occurs three times in the New Testament. Uh, the other time it occurs is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 14. Paul is giving some exhortations to uh, Timothy. And he's telling them uh, certain things. And he says, you know, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Uh, that deceive, that first one is our same word here. The second word is, is a different word. Uh, but this is that word. And it has this idea of being misled, uh, taken down a wrong path. It, it also occurs, the other time it occurs is in James chapter 1. Now let's go over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, James is directing, giving a lot of application to how they should live, a, a person should live. He's, he's writing to these tribes who are dispersed abroad, and he's talking about different trials, different situations, um, things that will come into the person's life. And our word appears in verse 26. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious. So there's the person. He, he considers himself religious. Uh, he, he has perfect attendance on all services that the church has. Uh, the person even comes for the dehanging of the green, which I don't know if you guys noticed. There's no more Christmas stuff. It, it magically disappeared. Like, oh my word, how did that happen? Uh, it happened yesterday. Praise the Lord for those who came and did that. But the, the person has perfect attendance on hanging and dehanging of the green. Uh, the person does all this type of stuff. They consider themselves to be religious. They might even teach a Sunday school class. They might be a deacon. They might be a, a pastor or an elder. It says, and yet, he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Religion is worthless. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing that he says, the comparison that he does. A person who does not bridle their tongue, this person has deceived themselves. They've tricked themselves into thinking they are something that they are not. They've put their spirituality up here, and James says, no, you're way down here. Not even close. A person that does not bridle their tongue. The idea then is that this deception is that they have imagined something that is not true. They have misled themselves into an idea, a facade. This is who I am. When in reality, that's not who they are. It, it, their religion is worthless. Now, coming back to Ephesians chapter 5, it says, chapter 5 or 6, do not be deceived. Do, do not be misled. Do not trick yourselves. Uh, uh, with what? With empty words. The, the word for empty could also be translated as uh, vain. It has this idea of being devoid of intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. These are, these are words that have no spiritual value, no intellectual value, no moral value for the person. Uh, now, who, who is giving these words? Well, we'll have to look at that. But we have to consider, who's giving these words? And, and what are these words being spoken? What well, seems contextually... If we look at what is being presented here, starting from chapter 4, 
there's a whole standard of how to live, uh, how to walk worthy in, uh, of the calling in which you have received, uh, for one, uh, 4.17, to uh, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Um, in chapter 5, verse 2, it, it says to walk in love. Uh, and then it gives all this list of uh, sins that it says. So vain words seems to be, if we look at it contextually, is to say, well, those, those sins are not really sins, sins. I mean, it's not really that bad. You don't really have to do these things. I mean, it, it presents some really, really hard things. Like, for example, chapter uh, 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Vain words says, ah, you, you can't forgive. If you forgive her, she's going she's to hurt you again. You forgive him, he'll be back at it again. You can't, you can't do that. Vain word says, you can't really trust God's word. And you have experience to say, oh, no, I know I can't really apply this to my life. So there's these vain words. So this, basically you have God's word on one side, which is telling us how to live, how to walk, how to conduct ourselves. And then on the other side, there's these people who are giving empty words. And these are devoid of intellect, moral, or spiritual value. Now it says about these empty words, for because of these, these empty words, these things, what has happened? The wrath of God comes upon. The wrath. This is a word that has the idea of anger, but it has more than just anger. If you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, you might, uh, you might get upset. And maybe, maybe even in your mind, you might think some, something to say to that person, right? Uh, but most of the time, what doesn't happen is that you pull out and then you, you accelerate and then ram them off the road and, and then have them blow up, right? There's no retribution, right? There's nothing like that that happens. It's just you get mad and that's it. This word isn't that he just gets angry. This word has the idea that retribution comes with this anger. There's a punishment for this wrath. And it's, it's, it's a wrath of someone. It's not just wrath in general. It's the wrath of God. Now this wrath comes upon so you have somebody underneath where the wrath is coming upon, and it's who? The sons of disobedience. Now that seems like kind of a unique phrase, and you have to wonder, is that phrase, does that phrase appear anywhere else in the New Testament? And it does. It, uh, it appears in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, it appears in verse 2, but if we start reading in verse uh, one, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then it appears another time in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. So these sons of disobedience are these people who are separate from God. They're dead in their sins. They follow the prince of the air. 
They do not have uh, communion, fellowship. They are not sons of God. They are sons of disobedience. And what happens to these individuals is that God's wrath is upon them. And they're underneath it to receive it. Now, considering this, we have the warning of verse 7. Therefore, because of this, do not be partakers with them. That word uh, partaker is kind of a a made-up word of of Paul. It, It doesn't occur a lot of times in the New Testament. In fact, it only occurs one other time, and it occurs in the letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6. Here the context is talking about the new believer. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 it says, To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So if we look at context here of this word and how it's presenting being a partaker, it's not that the person just casually greets somebody, you know, hello neighbor. It's not like that, but rather that there is an intimate fellowship one with the other. If the person has this fellowship of 3-6, they are not to be partakers in 5-7. In, in they're, they're not to have this intimate fellowship with them. It's not that you can't say hello to an unsaved person. It's not that you can't go buy gas from an unsaved person. But this type of fellowship, you shouldn't be having. It should not exist among you. Now, thinking about this, that those who are in Christ must believe God's word, what we have here is two opposites. You have God presenting that based on these truths of chapter 1, 2, and 3, you should be walking, you should be living, you should be conducting your life in this fashion. And then on the other side, there is the vain words of individuals saying, "Mm, it's really not that serious. You don't really have to be that holy. You don't really have to walk in that love. I mean, not quite like that. You don't have to be that radical. So we have to believe God's word. If we're going to be in Christ, we must believe God's word. And so let's apply this a little bit. The sons of disobedience are not going to encourage you in believing God's word. You might be wondering or thinking that maybe you're unsafe friend is going to encourage you to actually believe God's word. You're not going to find encouragement from your unsaved friend to do this. It's just not going to happen. In fact, they'll give you all types of empty words that sound fantastic. And you'll think, oh, wow, that that is just wonderful. It just soothes my, my heart. It's what I wanted to hear. But they have no value because they are not in accordance with God's word. Therefore, they have no power to really satisfy what you want. Oh, but it will say what your heart wants. But it will not really satisfy what you need. Now, thinking about this, that there's these individuals who give vain words, it it, uh, makes me think about the situation that Peter addressed in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, he's addressing false teachers. And these false teachers, uh, he he describes them. Uh, Verse 17, 2 Peter 2, verse 17. These are springs without water and mess driven by a storm. 
For whom the black darkness has been reserved, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desire, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. What do they do? Promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. They speak all types of vain words. They promise all types of freedom. And our little hearts say, yes, this is what I like. But it has no value because it's not in accordance with God's word. Now, the problem with this is that only God's word really will satisfy us. It it will only give us what we desperately need. And if we go searching Elsewhere for these things, we're not going to have it. So the question is, can we or are we going to trust God's word or are we not? Uh, You think about when Jesus is there in Jerusalem in John chapter 7, 37 through 39, where he claims to be water, living water. And and those who believe they're going to have uh, rivers running out of them. Rivers running out of them. Is that a true statement? Or is that one of those uh, super spiritual statements that really has no practical or logical sense? I mean, he's, he's offering here uh, rivers of, of, of water to be coming out of you. Is that going to pay the bills? Is that going to pay groceries? I mean, the real world, how does this living water help me? Is it going to put gas in my car? And we might be confused to think that um, my real problem is I can't afford eggs anymore. My my deepest desire is that gas is going up again. And what I desperately need more than anything is somehow to pay for those things. Now, are we going to believe what we think we need or are we going to believe God's word? Because what God says is that we have a different need. Uh, John chapter 6, he's talking about uh, the bread, and uh, they're wanting more bread. And in John chapter 6, verse 35, he he says that that he is that bread. If you eat him, you'll be satisfied. He said, no, I I don't want Jesus. I need need to buy eggs, (laughs) milk, milk, so expensive milk. How am I going to do that? See, That's where we have to say, am I going to trust God's word to say what I actually need, or am I going to come up with my own needs and demand that God satisfy them? Now, thinking about this, the sons of disobedience, the the, the problem is that God's wrath is against them. You know, consider that. God's wrath is against them. These individuals who have these, these vain words. Now, these people that present these vain words, they, uh, they try to downplay the sin and try to maximize the pleasure of the sin. And I'm going to use the context here because I don't want anybody to say, oh, Daniel's picking on my, my sin. There he goes again. So I'm just going to use the sins that were mentioned in verses 3 uh, through 5. The first one that we saw was immorality. And we say, uh, people with vain words, what will they say? Sexual immorality, that's, that's not a big deal. People do it all the time. That's, that's not a big deal at all. Or in 
free. Impurity is not a big problem. Or, or, or greed. Oh, you know what a problem is? The problem is those lazy bums. They're always dependent upon the government. At least I'm going out and working, you know? And you might call it greed, but I call it working, all right? And we justify ourselves. Now, thinking about that these sons of disobedience, they, they present an alternate reality of things. They'll downplay what God has said, that we're to walk in love as Christ loved you, to be thankful. Uh, they'll downplay that aspect. But God's wrath is against these people. Now, 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 thinking about this, that we shouldn't have any type of fellowship, just like the fellowship we have with Christ, we should not be having that type of fellowship with the unsaved. What does it say when the world says, oh, Dave, Dave is one of those cool Christians. I mean, he's not like one of those one Christians that make me feel bad about what I do. He makes me feel good. But what would we say about Dave's testimony? We say, do you have a testimony? Or if he says, you know what, I, I just enjoy, I enjoy being with my unsaved friends so much. I mean, our, our values are the same. He said, dude, what's going on with you spiritually? Would we not? We would question, what is going on? Are you even saved? Why? Because God's wrath is upon these people. And that person, what they need to do is repent. Now, not only do we have to consider that God's wrath is upon them, but we have to consider our flesh in, in, this, in this problem. We get saved, and at that moment of being saved, our spirit is given life. That happens instantaneously. We are given life. We not only are given life, but we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And not only that, we are placed in the body of Christ. We are uh, dead to sin and alive to Christ. These are things that happen instantaneously. But we still have our flesh. And that flesh uh, stays with us until the day we die. And I would say, I mean, I don't know what your friends are, so I don't know what they're counseling you. But I bet that our biggest problem is our own flesh. Why? Because we are constantly with ourselves, right? And we constantly talk to ourselves. Uh, some people even do it out loud. You see them in Kroger walking, and, and they're actually out loud saying stuff. You know, the rest of us try to keep it in our head, you know, and, and don't, <laughs> don't be talking out loud. But some people talk to themselves, and what is our mind thinking about? Well, our mind is being fed by the desires of our heart. And we are constantly struggling with telling ourselves uh, what our idolatrous heart wants, rather than having faith in God. So let's look at it contextually again. We'll look at the, what it's already presented in chapter uh, 5. Uh, immorality. And immorality, I said, was any type of sexual sin outside of what God has ordained between a husband and a wife. So anything outside of that is, is immorality. Well, we try to just justify that all the time. We, we'll use comparisons. Disney has over 203,000 employees. Robert Eager is the CEO of Disney. Do you think he cares what's going on sexually with his employees? He doesn't care. Now, now think about God. He's created this whole universe, all these galaxies. He's created it all. And we're just this tiny little planet 
inside this huge cosmos. And we are little individual people on top of this teeny tiny planet going, floating around in this huge cosmos. You're telling me that God cares about our sex life? He does. He demands that we be holy. He does. He cares. We can try to justify all we want, but God has already established. And the thing is, are we going to accept that as truth? Or are we going to go with our own desires? Let's take impurity. Impurity is any state of moral corruption. I've heard people, pastors, missionaries, I've heard deacons say, I would be perfect if we lived in a perfect society. But there's all types of moral corruption, so we have to adapt to be able to serve the Lord. <laughs> really? It's not what God says. He says not to be that way. Not to be engaged in any impurity, any type of moral corruption. Or how about greed? There in verse 3, it mentions greed. Greed is that desire to want more and more and more. Greed, we try to justify in different ways, and I'll just give you one way. I, I am the son of the king of kings. There's certain expectations, there's certain benefits of, of being the son of a king of kings, isn't there? Uh, if he loves me, he, he wants the best for me. So therefore, I should be pursuing the best of everything in life. I mean, I love my kids, and, and I want to provide the best that I can. And if God is the king of kings, and he owns everything, the cattle on a thousand hills, then he wants me to have all these things. What, what have we done? We deceived ourselves by defining and establishing the standard of love and defining what love is, and then we're demanding that God act according to our standard and our definition. It's, it's all that we've done. Where God has already presented what love is, and that Christ gave himself. For who? For nasty, riches sinners. That's the definition of love. Now, greediness can present itself in different ways. It, it, most of the time it will present itself in material things, but it can present itself in, in different ways. I'll give you just two. Uh, one is, is safety. However you define safety. Safety might mean that you have a good, safe job that's going to be able to pay the bills. Safety might mean a good education that is going to open doors for you in the future. Uh, safety might, might mean uh, a whole list of other stuff, but, but sometimes we're greedy for safety. We're looking to, have, to be more and more safe. There, there are many that are called into missions that never make it to the mission field because they just cannot figure out how to make that place safe. They'll never go. They'll, they'll never go because they don't know how in the world am I going to be safe over there? And their heart just desires to be safe. And they'll stay put. If they ever do figure out how to make it safe, then they'll go. But then that's not faith, is it? How about power? Some people are greedy for power. Oh, they, they got a little bit of power. But there's always some ignorant person that doesn't realize that they're the person in charge, and so they got to raise their chest a little bit more, get a little bit more boisterous. 
they need to make sure that they, everybody knows that they're in charge. Those who are in Christ must believe God's Word, and what's presented here is, is two opposites. God's Word, of what He determines as right and wrong, and then those who speak vain words. Now, thinking about this, let me just make a quick application. By the way, we're not going to get all the way down to verse 14. In case you were just wondering, you're like, oh my word, we're only at verse 7. <laughs> uh, we're not going to get all the way to verse 14 today. But let me just apply this in one more way. If you do not really know God, you will not really believe His Word. Therefore, you will not live by faith by obeying God's Word. If you do not really know God, you will not really believe His Word, and therefore you will not live by faith obeying God's Word. You will doubt God's goodness. Even though Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25 and 26 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting of shadow. He does not change. He only gives Good gifts. But if you do not know God's goodness, you'll struggle and you will fight against God because you'll try to safeguard your plans and purposes. You, you cannot imagine that God would have a better plan for you somewhere else. And so you'll fight against God. You'll struggle to obey God because you think that his laws are just for his benefit, and they have no benefit for you. You say, I can't trust God. All those things are going to make my life boring. I can't follow his laws. Or you'll, you'll look at your situation as unique. I, I see God's word, and I see what it says, but, but, I have this and this and this in my life, which makes my situation totally unique, which means that I don't have to listen to this at all. Especially that whole stuff about chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ also forgave you. You don't understand I have a unique situation. Or those who are super spiritual will say, the Spirit tells me I don't need to do that. If you don't know God, you won't know that He's good. Therefore, you won't follow Him. It just won't happen. But if you know God, then you will know that He is a good God. You'll meditate on the fact that He adopted you. You'll meditate on the fact that Christ loved you and died for you. That the Spirit has sealed you and set you apart for the day of redemption. He has given you good works for you to do. You'll live in gratitude, expressing gratitude to the Lord. Nothing helps you to escape uh, sin than gratitude, giving thanks unto the Lord. Now, thinking about this, those who are in Christ must walk in all things good, righteous, and true. 
And it might be that today you cannot do that because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You, you don't know God as, as a father, as a good father. Maybe you know that he's somebody up there that's just mad and irritated with everybody, and it's a good thing to come to church, you know, because that's what some Americans do, but you, you don't really know God because you've never known his son. And, and in a minute, we're going to have an invitation. I would encourage you to come forward. I, I would love to show you how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through his death, or, or better yet, ask somebody right beside you. They would love to open God's word and share with you how you can have a relationship with God. Others here are saved, but they've been listening to a lot of vain words. They haven't been listening to scripture. They've been listening to a close friend. <laughs> they've been listening to a parent, maybe a counselor. But they haven't been listening to God's word and believing it, putting it into practice. And, and, and it tells because you don't really believe God's a good God and you say, I can't do this. This is not the real world. This is presenting something super spiritual for who knows who. And it comes down, are you going to believe God's word or not? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I pray now as we consider our response to your word. Are we actually going to believe your word and put it into practice? Or are we going to somehow think that we're above it or beyond it? Father, those are just vain words. I pray, Father, that we'll get to know you. And we'll realize that you're a good God and that your word needs to be obeyed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would, please stand as we sing the song of invitation.